You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Lori R. King is the award-winning, best-selling author of 17 Mary Russell novels, of five contemporary novels featuring Kate Martinelli, and acclaimed standalone novels such as Folly, Touchstone, The Bones of Paris, and A Lockdown. She's an Edgar Award winner and was named the 2022 Grand Master by Mystery Writers of America. Congratulations, Lori. Thank you. I, I, I'll bring my crown. <laughs> wow. Her new novel is Back to the Garden. Thank you for joining me, Lori. Oh, it's always lovely, Rick. You know, it was close to 30 years ago that I remember being in Aptos Bookworks when it was still Aptos Bookworks. Such things existed. I walked in there and I looked at the shelves and I saw this book called The Beekeeper's Apprentice. It said, local author. And I looked at it and I thought, wow, this is really interesting. You know, it, it, it's California meets Sherlock Holmes and that. <laughs> yeah, 1994. Okay. Oh, so. Yeah, yeah. Close to close to thirty years. So you know, one of the things that struck me is that this novel there's a continuum from that novel to this novel. And that's I think that one of the things you've been trying to do in much of your work is to join the British mystery as exemplified by Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes novels to the California mystery as you know, exemplified by Raymond Chandler. <laughs> <laughs> and me, I, me and Raymond, we're like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I, I think that this novel really succeeds in, in that, in making it, give, having the feel of a British estate novel, but set in the hills above <laughs> of Half Moon Bay. What a fantastic idea! I, I, I love it. I hadn't thought of it that way. Um, I, I have been aware that Back to the Garden is very closely related to the Kate Martinelli series, which was the first book that I published was A Grave Talent, and that was 93. And that one has a main character who is with the San Francisco Police Department. Um, There's five books in that, and then we did a standalone, I mean, sort of self-pub novella a couple of years ago that is similar to to this novel in that beginnings, the novella, was also to do with a cold case. So it, it's interesting how that links up, that I was thinking about cold cases, thinking about the police department, thinking about the character of Al Hawken, who is the partner of Kate Martinelli in the books. And, and yet you have this character in Back to the Garden who really isn't like most of the cops, you know. I mean, she's much more like Sherlock Holmes. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I I love Rachel Lang. I think she's a, a great character. And, and as I read this book, I thought, my God, this is going to be Laurie King's Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think it's as good as that. It is. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, it's not quite enjoyable. as creepy as that. I, it, no. You know. <laughs> But I, I like the uh, 
Talk about creating the setting. The, the gardener estate is just really such a phenomenal idea. It really comes to life in your writing. And, and because it, you know, it's so inventive yet so like such a cunning combination of, of realities. <laughs> yeah, it, it is very, very loosely based on the estate called Filoli. And it's, Filoli is in that same part of the peninsula, the San Francisco Peninsula. Mm -hmm. It has a similar kind of house and story and formal garden, but it's not based on any of the details to do with Filoli. So this, this is not, um, this is not that estate under a different name. It's, it's if 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 Philoli were in a different universe, shall we say, an alternate universe. So yeah, it's um, the Gardner Estate is a combination of of a country estate set in California and a sort of political center for a family with determined aspirations, shall we say, when it comes to politics in the 30s and 40s. And, um, and as you say, it's sort of also this country house of the, the English mystery variety that, you know, that will be familiar to any, to any cozy readers, although this is not really a cozy. And knows, well, I kept thinking Hearst Castle too, just because, you know, the the idea of the kind of grandeur. So, talk about. Um, did you create a map of this house for yourself, like a drawing? Did you have an oh, architect sure. draw it out? Yeah, yeah. No, I have. I have. I always do drawings. I bad drawings. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it helps to have a sort of physical layout so that when you're having people walk from here to there and go from here to the, the, the gazebo and the entrance to the other garden, you, you keep track of where they've gone and where they're, what they're seeing on the way. So, yeah, and, and of course, as you go, you have to redefine it and say, oh, no, you can't go there from here. <laughs> so <laughs> out, comes the, out comes the eraser, and you start again and put that there instead. So, yeah, yeah, I, I think... In, a, in another world, I might have, if, if I had been born with proper math skills, I might have been an architect rather than a writer. Because I, I always love architecture. Now, well, your books have a, a, an architectural feeling in the way they're constructed, too. And not mathematical, but there, there's, a certain, there's a very certain logic in the way they're put together. Yeah, yeah kind of flow between the one room and the next, the one chapter and the next. Yeah, <laughs> I, and this one has even has two floors to it. You have the then and the now, so it's you know the past and present on right. top of each other. Uh, that that aspect of it was was really fascinating. Talk about writing a novel set in the Bay Area in the seventies and early eighties. <laughs> I mean, that was a really wild time. I I had originally for a long time I wanted to write a novel set in, in partly in the 60s. But if I'd written it 20 years ago, I might have gotten away with it. But when, when you're talking about writing it in the, in the 2020s, um, you kind of think, um, 
maybe I should have all of these characters who were there then not quite so ancient. <laughs> and, uh, and so if it had been the 60s, they'd all be in their mid-80s. And I don't, I don't know if you can really get too committed to finding a murderer who's in their 80s. I mean, you sort of think, yeah, by the time the... By the time the trial is over, they're not going to be they're not going to be something we worry about. But by bringing it on to the '70s and especially the late '70s, um, I could make my main characters still vital, alive, and just in their '70s. And I, you know, be, being there myself, I know that you got various aches and pains, but you can still do stuff. <laughs> you know, I, I thought that was interesting to see the characters that those two different points in their lives, the, the ones you do see. And when you created the characters, did you create them as then and then project them forward to now or as now and project them backward to then? I wonder. I mean, that, that's an interesting question. I think, obviously, you start with Raquel because she's the, she's the contemporary character and so she didn't have a 70s. She's not born until after that. But... The other ones kind of depended on who you're interacting with. Um, I mostly wrote more or less in the in in the sequence that it appears. Some of the chapters, you know, instead of having it all then and all now, and then chopping them up. Mm. Um, this one. I did a certain amount of that, but it was more I needed to get the relationship between the now and then so clear from the beginning that even if I wasn't sure what happened in the then, I would write a chapter that sort of gave me an idea of what was going on and, and what the characters looked like. Um, there's not a lot of characters that, that continue from the then to the now. But there's enough of them that I think you get you get a chance to play with what does this person look like in his 20s as opposed to now. And also what they look like in the late 70s and early 80s as opposed to what they look like now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah, we all changed a bit, haven't we, Rick? I, I, <laughs> I guess, yeah, yeah. Well, lost a little hair, gained a little weight, eh? <laughs> It's, uh, as as it ever will be. You know, um, Rachel Lang is a wonderful character, and her sister Dee, I, I, you want you want to see more of Dee, but I, I, I just want you to talk about, because she is not the nicest person in the world. She is a person who will, you know, if... Some if scissors are required, she will use them on whatever part needs to be scissored, <laughs> so to speak. Well, I, like I said, I as I wrote Raquel, she she became a sort of modern day Sherlock Holmes. Mm -hmm. um, she has these amazing abilities and these really unfortunate social skills. <laughs> <laughs> i.e. she mostly just overlooks people as people <clears throat> until they suddenly catch her attention um but y yeah i think raquel and d are two people who interest me a lot in there and in the first draft i i didn't develop them a great deal 
because I'm very much an organic writer. I need to get a first draft before I realize where the book is going and what the people look like and so forth. And I figured that my second draft would give a lot more of <clears throat> Raquel's backstory, um, her relationship with Dee, what Dee is doing specifically in her online community and all the rest. And as I started poking around in the second draft, I realized that there's a lot of stuff that you really don't need to know. That the character as she is, as Raquel Lang is, is very much in in your face, but without giving herself away. Exactly. <laughs> and and as I looked at it and and thought about it, I realized how very like Arthur Conan Doyle's approach to talking about Sherlock Holmes. I mean, it's not that Raquel is in any way Sherlock Holmes, although her colleagues jokingly call her that. But th there's a similar approach to how you figure things out by seeing details that no one else does. And there's a similar approach from the writer's point of view to think, do you really need to know this, that, and the other about that person? For example, you look at Sherlock Holmes, and you don't know anything about his family other than he has a brother, and his family were country squires, period. Um, he has a grandmother who was the sister of the artist Vernet, without specifying which of the five generations of artist Vernet it is. And that is the only personal stuff you ever know about Holmes. Um, he went to university, you don't know which one. You don't know if he finished, you don't know what his degree was in, you don't know any of his, you know, there's one friend who appears in one of the stories. But I found that really fascinating as a technique for talking about someone um, for whom their work is literally everything about them. Mm. And that's, that's very much Raquel Lang until she meets a character in here who makes her sort of step outside herself, which is another, was another interesting section to write about with Jen. I, I thought one of the things <clears throat> I really liked about this book was the way for me it really created like movies and pictures and scenes it's, it's very uh, I guess the word is cinematic although I don't it doesn't have like big wide well it does have some wide screen just shots. a couple of them <laughs> uh, yeah more like tracking shots I think <laughs> But but talk about uh, because you can really see the scenes where Raquel and and Jen are sitting down at the table, you know, having cut the various cookies at the estate. Uh, talk about putting, like I guess what you're saying about Sherlock Holmes is he's a guy who's all surface, and, and Raquel, in a sense, is all. All surface, and you know, novels are also to in their presentation to a certain extent all surface. Um, they don't have to be, but talk about that kind of a uh, notion of you know, if you see enough of the outside, see it vividly enough, you get a feel for what's inside. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the that's the interesting. <laughs> 
the, the interesting thing about writing character from a craft point of view is how to give the telling detail without getting bogged down in the color of their hair and the shape of their eyes and how tall they are. And, you know, um, that when you have someone like Raquel, for whom, as you say, she seems to be all surface, to have a character who is just surface is, would be way too dull. You need to get a vivid sense that this woman has an amazing depth to her that she's keeping from you. And I mean, it, 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 again, not to, not to overwork the parallels because they are, they are fewer than you'd think from what we've been saying so far. Um, but it's similar with the Holmes character that there are these, these few revealing scenes where in one he thinks he's killed Watson. And instead of just standing back and saying, oh, drat, <laughs> which, you, which you might expect, um, you know, he's, he's passionately frightened that he, has, that he has killed his only friend. And you get these odd little glimpses of the character beneath the surface. And I wanted that in, in Raquel as well. You know, uh, you you mentioned this character Al Hawken. He's another guy. You don't see him much, but he's a big presence, and we we get a uh, you know he's a guy that again uh, I would I really look forward to finding out more about him in, in the next book. Al is is in some ways the opposite of Raquel, isn't he? I mean, he's. Mm-hmm. He's not so much surface as all depth. His approach to to interrogation is sympathy rather than finding something that breaks breaks into a locked room. Um, his he fits in the San Francisco Police Department. He's comfortable as a cop. He he is a team player. Um, he gets along well with others. He works well within the setting that that Raquel doesn't. Um, and that this is a, a sort of theme that runs through the book is the question of whether or not she's comfortable in the San Francisco Police Department, whether she will continue to find a place for herself, whether she will go outside of it or um, or find a way to work in it. But I, I liked using Al, who is the supporting character in the Martinelli books as well, um, because he is the stuff that you'd like every cop to be. And I, I, I liked that. He's, he's a Jerry Orbach kind of guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. Without the New York. Yeah. You know, um. As I read this book, I, I love the the vision of a grand past and, and where as the, of, as of the Gardner estate, and it, there were different versions of that grand past. There's the grand past of the grandfather and, and the movie stars, and then there's the grand past of the hippie commune, which is equally you know 
<laughs> wild and filled with famous and talented people. So, yeah. and these days it's just kind of like, you know, it's another stop on the sightseeing tour. It's maybe a nice stop, but it's not grand. So talk about recreating different versions of the grand past at the same place. Well, I, I think that the movie stars of the 30s and 40s um, were the rock stars of the 70s, weren't they? Right. That I mean, obviously you had mm-hmm. movie stars of the 70s and you had music um, stars of the 30s and 40s, but they, the position that they take in society so that if you're trying to, if you're trying to find a way into the life of a politician, you invite him to a party with, you know, with people like Catherine Hepburn and the rest of them. Um, and similarly, if you're if you're fine, if you're wanting to establish yourself as a force in the art world in the '70s, you invite musicians and and cutting edge artists. So because one of the characters in the commune had personal, or two of them, had personal contacts with the rock world, you get a lot of people washing through. And you would, wouldn't you? I mean, anyone who's coming from San Francisco and headed to L.A., they're right there. So they might as well come and spend a few days at the commune, whether you're Bob Dylan who's finished the... (laughs) <laughs> the the Rolling Thunder review or <laughs> someone somewhat later. Kurt Vonnegut. <laughs> I was happy to see Kurt Vonnegut <laughs> there. You never know who's gonna wander through. Wasn't wasn't he wearing an apron? I think. In yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I really like that detail because you could absolutely see it. Yeah, see Kurt Vonnegut in an apron. <laughs> you know. Uh, the, the plotting on, in this book is really, really clever. And, and it's, you know, you, a lot of tension for a cold case book and be, because you really inside the, the want to know what's going on. To, and so talk about uh, creating the backbone plot for this book, which is, all, I guess, draws a lot, I think, on a recent case that has recently come to fruition. Yeah. Yeah, um, it you can't you can't just have a cold case that investigates a limited series of people, all of whom are in their seventies and eighties, and I I wanted to have a way of opening it up to some extent, to you know larger larger issues. When I was writing it, the Joseph D'Angelo case was coming out. And um, D'Angelo was a multiple offender in pretty much the same time period. But because he was a cop, he knew how to get away with things and hide in plain sight. So he, he has a string of rapes and break-ins and murders and everything that stretch up and down the West Coast in California, and um, and is discovered in a similar way to I, I mean I had come up with the way of 
without giving too many spoilers here, of discovering my offender in the book, I'd come up with that from another, from another source. But it was similar how D'Angelo was found, was caught. So, um, I, you know, the, the weird presence of a number of serial killers in and around the Santa Cruz and Bay Area in that period it is so, I mean, it's just bizarre to think of because this was such a peace and love hippie commune kind of a place and still is. And yet you had these basically three men who committed this whole string of murders that confused the hell out of the FBI and the police because we we thought we caught them and yet they're continuing. <laughs> And that nobody, nobody thought that there might be two such people working at the same time. And, and so you have this background in the, the then period of Back to the Garden of these serial killers who are working on the innocent victims of you know, people hitchhiking. I, I used to hitchhike. I'd stand out in the, on the freeway hitchhiking by myself because who who knew you shouldn't <laughs> i i went camping at the place where one of them took a pair of people um in fact more than that, several people and you know it was part of the background but if you weren't if you weren't locked into social media who who really became aware of these things you know I, you know it's always kind of um uh, boggled my mind that Santa Cruz, of all places in the world, was known as the serial cap- killer capital of the world. I yeah. mean, it's just, uh, yeah. I, I, it's hard to wrap your brain around. It is. It really is. And and yet there were, there was one, there were two serial killers and a mass murder all at once. The fellow who killed five people all together at one time. And I, I mean... Of all the places that you'd think of, Santa Cruz would be pretty low on the list. Yet here it was. Here we are. You know, it's interesting, too, now that we think about it in context of what modern America has become. In a sense, we were just a a good glimpse, an unfortunate glimpse of the future. To some extent, although if you look at the figures, the FBI figures on serial killers— there are very, very few of them operating now compared with then because the, the 70s were the time when people became aware that not all murders had to be, not all deaths by murder had to be related, that there could be some that were simply randomly chosen, picked up, and didn't have a pattern to them other than they were murdered. So, um, you know, it... That period in history changed how multiple deaths were were investigated, mm-hmm. and and now there's you know de- deaths that are unexplained get fed right into the whole federal um, system, looking for could it possibly be the same person as X or Y, 
And, and so, you know, they get caught a lot earlier now. You know, one of the things that about uh, serial ki- killers, especially in fiction, is that there's uh, been more than one attempt, and some of them have been extremely creepily successful, I will say, at, at evoking the idea that serial killers, while we like to think of them as loners, might attend conventions for serial killers. <laughs> I might have an association and and nominees. There, there might be a Golden Dagger Award for serial killers. Well, you you sort of think there's a certain amount. It's I think it's kind of like school shooters that you have. You want to you want to be bigger, mm. and I mean that's the creepy part of it that you think maybe we shouldn't be talking about them quite so much. But uh, yeah, <laughs> now. I, <laughs> What what I super loved about your book was that I don't think we're introducing any spoilers here. Is that you suggest that there might be an association of police working informally in the same manner to solve serial killer cases, somewhat within the law, but not necessarily entirely. Well, uh, yeah, all the all the cop stuff, all the modern cop stuff, especially, um, I I make sure that I get it right because otherwise I get letters, and <laughs> and I I don't like those kind of letters of they would never do that. So I have a couple of cops that um, have worked cold cases that know how things are put together, and so yeah, you're right. There is there is this informal network of cold case investigators that has sprung up in the now period of the book that um, that shares information, that gets together and bounces ideas off each other. Um, obviously, if they have something firm enough for an arrest, that brings it into a whole different level. But I think that, you know, cops need to network. And when you have cold case cops who are working on things that stretch back way, way. I mean, <laughs> you know, there, there's cold cases out there that probably go far beyond the 70s. Um, you, have to, you have to make sure that you have different ways of looking at it, that you take a new look at it occasionally. So the business in there that is referred to that Al hands Raquel uh, a murder book um, from a cold case when she's first getting started in the police. That's very, very common for when you have a new homicide inspector in the, certainly the San Francisco Police Department. Um, they are often given one or two cold cases to review, partly in order to get new eyes on it, on the off chance that they might come up with something and solve it. But it also enables them to learn how a case is structured, how you write things up, how you treat things, um, the sequence of, of events and when you're doing an investigation. So, you know, the, the modern cop stuff in the book is, um, is, 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 is quite kosher. <laughs> yeah. The way you create this, I think, Though for the reader, my experience about was it just opened up this whole 
universe that I immediately began populating, thinking, wow, what about this book she could write? Or that book. <laughs> or, or that book. Or that book. So I think as as readers, our experience of this is to, is it creates a, it's a, a quick way for you to create a huge world out there that we can populate and fill in. Yeah, and I think that the um, the, the community that Raquel's sister D is obviously involved with, although because they are, <laughs> they don't actually operate within the lines. Um, Raquel herself tends to steer clear of them unless she really can't avoid it. Um, but that whole world is really interesting of amateur investigators, amateur sleuths who share information online, who look into stuff online, who back, back up the police. I mean, it's not that they're vigilantes. They're just amateurs with time, skills, and, um, and, and a lot of you know, communal effort. So you have some of them are working cold cases, and some of them are more like the international Bellingcat that does um, investigations of troop movements in Ukraine when nobody else was quite sure what was going on. You know, as a reader, you know, the fun of a mystery is putting together the different parts. And, and this is the dual timelines and the way you play them against one another makes that really fun with this particular book. And you said earlier that you kind of wrote it in sequence. And so I'd like you to talk about creating those two timelines and making use of that. That seems like a really great, you know, a, a, a good way to give yourself a hand ladder to, through the plot, as it were. Well, it's kind of tricky because unless you are going to tell one story all the way beginning to end and then pick up the modern era and tell that beginning to end, you have to have some way of tying together the then and now chapters that are, you know, that, that make sense so that the then chapter gives you the basis and the now chapter t shows you basically Raquel working to analyze what she's just been told in the then chapter. There's a lot of stuff in those then chapters that she doesn't really need to know, but the reader does. And that's always tricky because, you know, literally speaking, to have someone telling her all these things, there, there are certain scenes where they wouldn't have told her they, they didn't see it, but the, the reader needs to see it. So it's one of those areas where this is not strictly speaking a whodunit, where with a whodunit to play fair with the audience, you have to give them all the information and then they figure it out or not. Whereas this one, you actually receive more information than you need, but it doesn't say how, you know, you know how how the actual investigator discovers these things. Um, it's, I, I think, so long as there aren't any overt coincidences or places where she couldn't have known something because of X. 
the readers in general are willing to give the writer a bit of slack. Um, it's kind of like in the, in the Martinelli books, I reached a certain point in the books where I realized that um, it was silly to forever, if you have two investigators, Mary Russell and Sherlock Holmes, it's, it's silly just because you're telling the stories from Russell's point of view to have to figure out a way <coughs> to, <laughs> to get Holmes's information. I mean, does he write her a letter? Does he sit and, and repeat a conversation so you get it all in, in sort of prose backstory instead of actual seeing it happening? And I thought it's, I, <laughs> I, I don't have to stick to first person the whole way. I can have the occasional chapter where we go into third person and watch Sherlock Holmes do his stuff and then come back to Russell's point of view. And I think so long as the reader understands what you're doing and where you're coming from, and it's clear, then, I, you know, that's, it's, it's playing fair. Well, it certainly works in terms of the reading experience. We, it That's was it. one of those areas where I really depended on my editor. We mm -hmm. went back and forth a lot in the last months of the rewrite in choosing which, where to cut which chapters and insert a now chapter and then go back to the then voice and whose voice should be giving this. And, you know, so, yeah, it's was a, a very tightly woven, especially in that final quarter section of the book where you're having a lot of weaving it together. Um, so, yeah, it was... I'm glad it worked. <laughs> One of the characters I, I really loved was Jerry. Uh, and he shows up in both uh, then and now. And I have to say, he, he's a lawyer, and I have to say, I because I'm from California, I just said, okay, it, it, he looks like Jerry Brown. <laughs> okay. I hadn't, hadn't thought of him as Jerry Brown, but okay, whatever. Because we, we know Jerry, I mean, I remember Jerry then. And, you know, he was a really young guy and doing all this wild 800 number. Who ever thought of he seen an 800 number? And to now, and he, you know, he's hanging kind of, out with Linda Ronstadt, and yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And now he's a crusty old man, kind of the, doing the Ed Asner thing, but still cool, still cool. I mean, Jerry Ross, still ahead of ahead of his time. Yeah, I think that. Uh, I mean, I I needed to have a, a lawyer in there to handle certain things, um, but there's no reason why lawyers have to be. Totally boring, right? No, no. I, I, I know a couple of lawyers who aren't. <laughs> now, um, when you're starting a, a book like this, and I, I understand, did you when you started this book with Ra Raquel, did you know, okay, this is the first in a series, and you, you have you're juggling a lot of series. You already have a suit. <laughs> I mean, you have. 17, probably 17 and three quarters at this point. Uh, Mary Russell novels. You've got five Kate Martinelli novels. I mean, that's two, a lot. Two Stuyvesant and Gray, and then right. some of the standalones are sort of related, but you don't really know how. Right. Um, yeah, I I wasn't sure when I, when I started. In fact, I was most of the way through the 
Certainly when I, I was finishing up the first draft, I wasn't entirely certain whether it was going to be a standalone or not. But I liked the character of Raquel, and I liked the situation a lot to the extent that I thought it would be interesting to revisit it. And as I worked on the rewrite of her, and as I said, found all these things that she didn't want said in the book, as it were, um, it occurred to me that having a lot unsaid left a lot of doors open for a future series. So yeah, I think I, by, you know, by, certainly by the time I was working on the second draft, I was saying to my editor, I think this is a series, and she was saying, cool. It, the first, the first announcements for it in, you know, the publishing world, and then I think on, when they put it up on uh, Amazon and things, treated it as a standalone. So you'll occasionally see it referred to as a standalone. But, um, and it doesn't say on the front of it, a Raquel Lang mystery. But I think that, I think that they're, uh, I mean, I've had, I've had conversations with my editor about a second one in a couple of years. So, yeah. So, so that will be what you would follow up after the next uh, Russell book? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, the next Russell book will be February 2024. And then the next Raquel Lang would be sometime a, a year or so after that. Now, um, you've been at this for a while. <laughs> yeah. So talk about being, you know, getting, you know, the, all the props that, that have come your way in, in the last year. It's like everybody suddenly figured out, wow, you know, she's written a whole lot of books and they're all really, 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 really good. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we should say, maybe we should take notes. Can I can I have that sentence as a as a blurb on my next cover, right? Yeah. <laughs> how how many reallys were there in there? I, I have to count them. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think. I mean, I've been really fortunate as well, and I, this is a this is a thing that every time I am at a conference that has to do with craft gets discussed a lot is, you know, the process of getting published. And I was in a different, a different generation from those that are getting started now. And I'm really, 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 really glad <clears throat> that I don't have to get started now. Because it's, it's tough. I mean, there's all <laughs> There's only four publishing houses in this country, and you know, I mean, theoretically, two. Or th 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 theoretically, there's five, but it's really four, and then they're pretty soon there's yeah, as you say. And if you know, if one imprint within you know Random House or Macmillan turns you down, it's very unlikely that another imprint is going to pick you up because they don't tend to step on each other's toes. And it's not impossible, but, <clears throat> but it's... Um, and, the, and then you have the whole question of the self-pub world. I mean, there's some excellent, excellent writers working self-pub. 
But it also means that there's you're competing with people who have no skills, no editorial work, um, who sell their books cheap because they're cheap. And how do you distinguish yourself as a new writer from that? Um, it's, you know, it's a hard world. Um, I started with, uh, with a, an imprint called Thomas Dunn at St. Martin's Press. They did the first seven books. Bantam Books at Random House bought my paperback rights from the beginning, and then I went to them for hardback starting in the mid-90s, the late 90s. And and I've been with Bantam ever since. Um, I'm, I don't know, is this one called Bantam or Ballantyne? They, I, they, they, keep, they put, keep putting different labels on it, but it's the same people. It, it's Bantam. It is a Bantam, yes. Yeah. I thought they had gone back to that. I just, you know, they... I've been Random House, I've been Ballantine, and I've been Bantam, so I'm not, <laughs> I don't know what hat I'm wearing this month. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, I've been really fortunate in that I've had very few editors. They've all been super supportive. If I wanted to do something that was different, they didn't say no. They may have said, we can't pay you as much in advance, but they, they've done it. Um, I even had a, a, a futuristic science fiction novel. Uh, and a damn good one, too. And, uh, I, and, and unpleasantly and <laughs> predicted uh, yeah, of, yeah. of, Here you we know. go, pandemics and the lot. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I mean, even Khalifi's Daughters was published as a paperback original, a mass market under a pseudonym, but it was published, and... You know, not everybody can say that. In uh, if you're not, if you're not a number one New York Times bestseller, which I'm not, mm-hmm. um, to get that kind of long-lasting support from your publisher is a very valuable thing. Well, this this book, I think, uh, may may get you your number one spot. <laughs> oh, from from your mouth to God's ear, uh-huh. Rick. my mouth to the ears of. Of <laughs> millions of book buyers, <laughs> that yeah. that's really what works, yeah. works for me. You know, um, the uh, Russell books have been, you know, optioned. I think on and off for for a while. <laughs> yeah. Why? Any and now the you know the most many i think of the home stores have gone out of have gone out of copyright is right yeah. yeah there's just a handful left so um where are you with getting uh Russell and Holmes to the silver screen or the small screen especially i mean nowadays it seems like it's yeah. a no brainer you know it's it, it's it's a bizarre world and I, because it's so bizarre, I tend not, I tend not to sink much of my ego into it. Mm. So I, I, as you say, they've been under option any number of times. Um, most of the options you just regard as being something that they give you extra money and they allowed to play with this particular toy for you know, a year or two years or whatever it is, and then they, they give it back to you and you can, you know, rent it out to someone else with another option. Um, the Russells were, yeah, 
I, I think we all had big hopes for a particular um, project that was started, <laughs> but it was started a long time ago, the first, the first uh, of the options. And <clears throat> it, I think the whole business of the pandemic just threw everyone off so much that no, nothing normal happened in Hollywood for all those three years. And the Russell and Holmes were a victim of it. Um, the, there were the various people who were attached to it um, had other projects that they normally would have finished working on by the time Russell and Holmes came along. And because of the pandemic, they couldn't. So they were just gearing up on various things when, when Russell and Holmes came to the top. And you know, there's only so so many years you can continue to say, oh, sure, you can hang on to it. Um, mm. So, so it's back. It's out of option now, um, and it, it's it's going to it's going to make another round. So we'll find a good home for it somewhere. As a writer, one of the things I was thinking about when you were talking about your books is there's really a Lori King universe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious to know where Khalifia's daughters, I'd have to think back to see, you know, where that kind of fits into it. But, but talk about that, because I think this is something that you must think about as a writer, that, you know, in a sense, there are all your stories are by you. They all take place in a world that you have, you know, created with your prose. Uh, how much of that do you keep in the back of your mind? I mean... This is Kate Martinelli, and and Martinelli is also tied, in in a certain extent, to to the uh, the Holmes books. Um, I I don't think of them as having much overlap. I mean, obviously, there's two times. Um, there's the one book that in which the art of detection, in mm -hmm. which Kate Martinelli finds a an Arthur Conan Doyle short story that was written during Conan Doyle's visit to San Francisco in 1924, I think it was. And the story itself is the basis for the, um, the, the novel. And I wrote it deliberately so that if you were someone who only knew Sherlock Holmes through Conan Doyle, this was a Conan Doyle short story. If you knew Sherlock Holmes through Russell and Holmes, which takes the attitude that Holmes was real, that he lived, and that he probably is still alive since his death has never been announced in the Times of London, then you would read that short story that's embedded in The Art of Detection as a missing adventure in the Russell world. So yeah, there is this one this one area of overlap. But you know, I don't I don't think that Mary Russell and uh, and Kate Martinelli would have an awful lot to say to each other. The two of them would really just puzzle each other no end. <laughs> well, I mean Al Hawkins is a uh, character in this book and in the Martinelli books, and also uh, Folly and uh, some of your standalones draw a little bit from from one another, if I'm not mistaken. And, and 
I'm just curious about you. So that you don't, when you think about when you start a new book, either in a series or out of a series, you think about, well, how does it, does this fit in with the rest of my oeuvre, as it were? Not, not really. Um, I mean, I, I write two series that are set in the 20s, and they, they have nothing to do with each other. I, mean, I think the Russells, have, the Russells are still working their way through 1925, and the Stuyvesant and Gray start in 1926. Mm -hmm. So theoretically, Harris Stuyvesant and Mary Russell could meet each other. Um, but I, I don't think I, I could envision that because they're just different kinds of worlds. Mm. You know, the Russell and Holmes is this sort of vaguely whimsical um, world of these two people, and then the, the Stuyvesant and Gray are much, much more, uh, much more gritty. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I, I can't think of any reason why, why you should bring them together. Um, some of the other ones, like you were saying, Folly and Keeping Watch are, are the same characters. I had envisioned those two as the basis for a series of, not so much a series, but maybe a cycle set up in the San Juans um, with those two and the other standalone um, Darker Place. And to have a couple others in there to fill in the missing missing pieces, because a darker place is about a woman who investigates cults for the FBI, and she meets two children in the course of it, and you you never at the end of it you never find out what happens to the kids. I mean they're alive and you know they're there, but the, it doesn't go on to say and they lived happily ever after or they went back to America or they you know they just you 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 know what happens to them, but they don't. They don't enter into any other stories. And I'd, I've always wanted to write the stories looking at them. What happened to them? Where where are they now kind of thing. So, But I, whether I lived long enough to do all these projects, Rick, I, I, can't, I can't tell you. <laughs> well, as, as with Sherlock Holmes, the London Times has not announced your death yet. Not and yet. And I'm going to just say so long as they do not, we're going to be expecting a new novel about every year and a half or so. Thank at, you. Yeah. At, mo at I, least, if not more often. I, I'll do my best. The new book by Lori R. King is Back to the Garden. Thank you for joining me, Lori. I, I love to visit your garden, Rick. Really. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, it exists only because I don't touch it. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.